So one of my colleagues, Matthew Bidwell, did a nice study of this a few years ago. He compared people who were promoted from within to a job to those who were hired from the outside into the identical job. Yes. And what he found is the people who were hired from the outside, it took them three years to perform as well to get up to speed compared to the people who were promoted from within. Right. And it took the people who were promoted from within seven years to catch up to the pay of people oh. who were hired from the outside. Oh, right? gee. So you pay a, a salary premium and you suffer a performance hit when you fill those jobs from the outside. Welcome to the Manage Self Lead Others Leadership Podcast with Nina Sunday for experienced and aspiring people managers. This show will help you explore ways to become a more intentional leader. Each episode, host Nina Sunday speaks with some of the brightest business minds on the planet who share a passion to elevate and transform team culture. Workplace culture hides in plain sight. Is yours flourishing? Join the movement to make your workplace a better place to work. Are you ready? Because it's time to manage self, lead others. Recently named by HR Magazine as one of the top five most influential management thinkers, Peter Capelli is George W. Taylor Professor of Management, Director, Centre for Human Resources, the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and has expertise in industrial relations and labour economics. Peter is a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal and writes for HR Executive Magazine and Harvard Business Review. Author of several books, his latest, published July 2023, Our Least Important Asset, Why the Relentless Focus on Finance and Accounting is Bad for Business and Employees. Welcome, Peter Capelli. Thank you, Nina. And I've been relishing your book published only a few months ago, Our Least Important Asset, and I have some questions around that, and I did I was fascinated by a couple of paradoxes that you point out, which I'll bring up later, one about how work gets done and the other one about hiring. But let's just start from the top, which is why do leaders see employees as liabilities instead of assets? Yeah, uh, and that is a kind of basic question, isn't it? Uh, And I think uh, there is a simple reason that rests on financial accounting. Yes. And the problem comes with the fact that in accounting, uh, people cannot be assets. Even employees who are locked into contracts, they can't be assets because you can only be an asset if it is something that you own. And because employers don't own their employees, financial accounting says that cannot be an asset. And from there cascades all kinds of things. You cannot invest in something if you don't, if it's not an asset. So unless you own it, you can't invest in it. So if I had a piece of software that needed to be updated, I could invest in that. I could replace parts of my machine. That's an investment If I take an employee, long service employee, and I send her to training, that can't be an investment. So that's kind of the heart of where a lot of the problems begin. And you say that's a failure of the imagination. Uh, Well, uh, I would say it is an attribute of financial accounting that 
accountants know about but don't really care, frankly. And, you know, one of the reasons why they uh, don't care is because until maybe a couple of decades ago, it wasn't that important because investors were not the people who drove everything, right? Um, you know, the idea was we thought when I first began my career, your job as a leader was to balance the stakeholders, um, employees, shareholders, customers, the community around you. And by the late 1990s, that at least in the US, but we did it to everybody, I think, was squished down and said, no, no, it's really all about investors. And the only thing investors see about most companies is financial accounting. So that is why this quirkiness of financial accounting in the last couple of decades becomes massively important. Let me suggest some other things that are quirky because of this. I mean, one yeah. is it really undermines any interest you have in training people because the investors, they might want to know how much you're spending on training, but they can't see it because right now training costs are bundled into administrative and other expenses, along with the amount of coffee you spend in the office, use in the office, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So they can't see that. Uh, and employment costs, they don't like because they have an assumption that they're fixed costs, even though we can get rid of people, at least in the US, pretty quickly. Here's another part of it, which is quite weird. And that is that a lot of the financial measures are reported on a per employee basis, revenue per employee, right. profit per employee, right? So I could make that numbers, those numbers look a lot better if I cut the number of employees. And I can do yes. that now by replacing my employees with contractors and with leased employees. So leased that employees have boomed the, in the, the US. Least number of <laughs> employees. Yeah. Because right. you're leasing them from another parent company. Yeah. Right. Right. And That's so suddenly trend. you look more valuable as a result. And employee benefits get squeezed because those are liabilities on the balance sheet. Now, you you do mention that a third of CEOs are engineers and that there yeah. are pitfalls of a CEO trained as an engineer. So what's the problem with managers coming from engineering or finance backgrounds? Yeah, I think this has been an, this is another maybe a second issue in addition to um, to financial accounting. The people who are CEOs are different now, and uh, they are way disproportionately engineers. Uh, wasn't this much the case for the last fifty years or so? Anyway, they tended to be partly finance, but a lot of marketing people. And the other thing is they were trained differently. So once you came into the company as an engineer 50 years ago, you were put into a management development program where you basically got a business school education, and then you had a lot of experience, hands-on managing people before they let you do anything really important. All that's gone now, right? All that management development gone. So the problem now is if you're an engineer and you come into the workplace, you've never seen anything about management. And you have a view of how things work, which is very much a kind of optimization view. And a lot of that is when you think about managing people, it's as if people are kind of robots and what we want to do is minimize costs and, you know, treat them as part of the machinery. And, you know, this has been a problem for a hundred years, 
but we spent a lot of time before trying to make sure that engineers kept both the optimization understanding and the rigorous thinking and understood enough about human psychology to not overdo it. Exactly. A basic understanding of human psychology with a dash of emotional intelligence. That's what this whole podcast is all about. We're, you know, yep. around episode 120 these days. Yeah. Right. Yes. Right. And we cut that out. Mm. Uh, so now you have engineers going right from engineering into management. They really don't know anything about um managing people, they get to the top of these companies often very quickly, especially if they start them. You know, the whole Silicon Valley industry is mainly people who were engineers or thought like engineers, never had any management experience, uh, and their companies were hugely successful. They're at the very top. That's the way they think of things, right? No management training, no management development, but now you're running a company with 100,000 employees, you know, so yeah, that's a problem. Well, one of the things you pointed out is that the goal of organisations or trend you've noticed is to have as few people as possible, even if it increases costs everywhere. And you suggest yep. that that's fairly inefficient. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason, again, is, you know, the way financial accounting works. We don't like employment costs. Employers and investors think they're bad. They think they're kind of fixed. So, we could squeeze those down um, and we can squeeze down our overhead, which are administrative costs. And you mentioned hiring before. That's maybe the best answer. I mean, the best example of this. So we don't spend any money on hiring. Uh, and here's a classic example of this. It's just crazy. We used to have recruiters who were, you know, not particularly well-paid people, but they were experts on finding talent and hiring people, figuring out who to hire. Yeah. So we cut those people, uh, and instead we push the task onto managers. Right. So now managers, you hire your own people. Um, and the managers, of course, don't know what they're doing, and they're super busy doing other things. So in no way is that efficient. But well, in terms of- they've never been trained how to hire. Yeah, they don't know what they're doing. Oh. Uh, and- and what, uh, so instead, we, instead of these recruiters who knew what they were doing uh, and were relatively cheap, we drop them, but our headcount drops, our employment costs go down, our managers don't have the ability to make good hires, we hire lousy people, they quit, uh, we have to replace them. And to see, really see this, you could see what companies keep track of. Yeah. They keep track of cost per hire, yes. time to fill positions, which, by the way, is going up time to fill well, because yeah. they don't know what they're doing. But also uh, but the, never... in Australia, the, 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 the number of people available for jobs is much less than before the pandemic. And I don't know if it's similar in the United States. Well, yeah, that, that's part of it. But it was going up even when there were people to hire. And right. the reason is because they're not good at it. They don't know how to hire but what they don't track is, are we hiring good people? Yes, that's right. Which is now, just insane, right? Now, you've brought brought up in your hiring chapter, which I found really fascinating, the paradox around passive and active candidates and the fact that some people call it headhunting. Is that an old term or? Yeah, well, it's like, a yeah. good one. Yeah, but the idea of headhunting, which is you you find somebody already in a job 
And you yeah. assume because they're not looking for a job that they must be good. But yeah. in fact, you've identified <laughs> that active candidates looking for a job aren't necessarily doing it because they're poor at the job they're in or they're struggling at that job. It could be that they're ambitious, they're passionate about work, they want more meaning yep. and they want to yep. contribute more. But yep. no one's. But you've actually done some research to identify that the success rate of hiring or seeking passive candidates to bring them on board, they're more interested in the money. It's yeah. like, what money are you going to give me to make me want to move? And right. they're not necessarily more successful than an active candidate. In fact, they're less successful. That's an interesting yeah. paradox. Yeah, that's right. And I'd like to take credit for that, but it was actually other other people's data, particularly LinkedIn, that found it. But you may know the famous quote from Groucho Marx. Yes. Who said, I... I'd never join any club that would have me as a member. Um, and that is exactly what's going on here. If, they, if they're if they applying for a, to, to, to work for us, that means they must want to be leaving their company. There must be something wrong with them, is basically what's going through people's heads. And they think, well, people who are happy someplace, they must be good. Well, it could be that they're happy someplace because they've got a very cushy, easy job in a place that's not threatening. And, you know, we know that the active candidates are people who want to advance. Yeah. So the only way you'll get a passive candidate to move is if you pay them a lot more money because they're happy where they are, right? So, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So right? for any line manager, middle manager, senior C-suite manager listening to this, your advice would be always advertise for a role so people self-select their interest in that role. So spend think, money yeah. on advertising widely to attract people. Yeah. Let them self-select. Don't approach people. Yeah, don't assume that the people who are applying for you are people who are troublesome or or problems. Yes. Um, but, you know, the bigger thing, Nina, is that we should be trying to develop our talent from within. And this is something in the U.S. that has not happened, has actually declined. So. I saw a survey of the U.S., but I just saw one in the U.K. was even worse. In the U.S., it was almost 60% of managers reported they had received no training on being a manager. And in the U.K., the figure was over 80%. Uh, we're just not training for people. And because of that, we don't promote from within, or that's part of it. So instead, we go outside to find somebody to do a job rather than advance somebody from within, which is just crazy. So one of my colleagues, Matthew Bidwell, did a nice study of this a few years ago. He compared people who were promoted from within to a job to those who were hired from the outside into the identical job. Yes. And what he found is the people who were hired from the outside, it took them three years to perform as well to get up to speed compared to the people who were promoted from within. Right. And it took the people who were promoted from within seven years to catch up to the pay of people oh. who are hired from the outside. Right? Oh, so you pay a, a salary premium and you suffer a performance hit when you fill those jobs from the outside. In the U.S. right now, the data suggests that only something like maybe 4% of employees get a promotion in a two-year period. So we're not promoting oh. people up. We yeah. are hiring them from the outside in, right? So it's it's not a great thing. Why, why do you think it takes longer for someone from the outside to reach that 
area of expert or that sweet spot of expertise compared to someone who's promoted from within? What's the reason for that? Yeah, well, they don't know the place. They don't know how things yep, work. They don't right. know the people, you know. They don't have any informal mentoring connections. Right, right. Yep. They don't do anything. <laughs> we cut that too. So, you know, you're just kind of thrown in. And if yes. you don't make it, then we toss you out and bring in somebody else. If you don't make it, then we throw them. You know, I mean, it's it's so penny wise and pound foolish, right? Which is should have been the subtitle of the book, but <laughs> yeah. it's a little too Anglo-Saxon, I guess. To, to... <laughs> True. Now, the other paradox I noticed was in your chapter, How Work Gets Done, uh, in our least important asset. You describe how at the start of the recent pandemic shutdowns, when uh, the, the panic, pandemic shutdowns, when 70% of office workers were sent home to work and because the feeling was we're all in this together, uh Employees were trusted to get the job done and they did because they were trusted and they did uh, accept that responsibility. Now, then came a shift to use monitoring software on the assumption that left to their own devices, people would goof off. So what's the situation now? Uh, well, you know, it's a it's a really good question. I think in fairness to people who have a more conservative view of human nature, it probably wasn't simply that... Um, we asked employees for their help. They were also pretty grateful to even have a job and to be able to work from home and not get sick out in the public and pick up the virus, you know? Um, So there was a lot of coming together on that, but yeah, there's um, certainly was a move to try to monitor people who are working from home and it's, it's still going on. I think in the U S it's been tempered a little bit in recent months simply by an effort to try to get everybody to come back to the office, right? Where we can, yeah. where we can watch you. Um, but I think there is this underlying assumption that if you're not uh, where we can see you, you probably are goofing off. So and, there's and a yet, lot of money spent on monitoring. Yeah, You hear lots of stories where people are maybe taking time off, maybe in the middle of the afternoon to pick up their children from school, then going back to work and then maybe having dinner, then going back to their email. So actually the day is spread longer because they're at home and they're capable to check in. And that's right. No, that's absolutely right. And the evidence suggests that the day is maybe a little more than an hour longer when people are working remotely. And that there is this second shift, particularly for parents that after dinner, they go back to work. Right. So yeah, they're working hard. Well, they're working certainly longer um, but they have some control over their time and yeah. people like control. You know? mm. Well, we're sort of coming to the end of our, uh, our our time, but there are two little topics I want to make sure I cover. One is psychological safety, because that's an area that I sometimes speak on. And okay. you, you've sort of mentioned that it's needed in creative situations, but in routine work, it can have negative consequences. So can you give us that nuance, please? Uh, yeah, so this is a paper that uh, was done by uh, my colleagues, um, Liat Eldor, uh, in particular, it was sort of her data. And what we want to do is minimize costs and, you know, treat them as part of the machinery. And, you know, this has been a problem for 100 years, but we spent a lot of time before trying to make sure that engineers kept both the optimization understanding and the rigorous thinking and understood enough about human psychology to not overdo it. 
exactly a basic understanding of human psychology with a dash of emotional intelligence. That's what this whole podcast is all about. We're, you know, yep. around episode 120 these days. Yeah. Right. Yes. Right. And we cut that out. Mm. Uh, so now you have engineers going right from engineering into management. They really don't know anything about um managing people, they get to the top of these companies often very quickly, especially if they start them. You know, the whole Silicon Valley industry is mainly people who were engineers or thought like engineers, never had any management experience. Uh, and their companies were hugely successful. They're at the very top. That's the way they think of things, right? No management training, no management development. But now you're running a company with 100,000 employees, you know, so yeah, that's a problem. So it's wonderful that you've created this book. So obviously you're passionate about the the potential for change or the need for change. You're in your work at the Wharton School at uh, of the University of Pennsylvania. Are you able to try and influence uh, a change in 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 people's approach to managing people, leading people? Well, you know, we try. <laughs> the problem is. There are also lots of counter voices <laughs> uh, and the counter voices come from optimization sort of thinking. Uh, they come from particularly the outside community. So our students are shaped more by what the business press thinks right. and what and says and what they believe are the smart, successful things to do. And a lot of that is not about managing people carefully. What is a little different now, I think, is that our students who are older, they come in at 27 or so, they have worked for a while and they've had enough experience being managed poorly right. that they know this starts to matter, right? So once we engage them in their own experience and say, do you really want to be like that person who managed you <laughs> this way? Uh, then you can kind of get their attention. There are some jobs where you really don't want any creativity you know, if you're a nurse, there are certain ways, oh. protocols you want to follow. Yes. I'll give them 60 them. mils instead of 70. <laughs> yeah, no. If they don't follow the protocols, there is that is a mistake, yeah. probably consequences. I don't think there's ever any reason to attack them personally yeah. about it. But consequences overlap with yes. a sense of safety, you know. So it's wonderful that you've created this book so obviously you're passionate about the the potential for change or the need for change you're in your work at the Wharton School at uh, of the University of Pennsylvania are you able to try and influence uh, a change in 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 people's approach to managing people leading people well you know we try <laughs> the problem is there are also lots of counter voices <laughs> uh, and the counter voices come from optimization sort of thinking. Uh, they come from particularly the outside community. So our students are shaped more by what the business press thinks right. and what and says and what they believe are the smart, successful things to do. And a lot of that is not about managing people carefully. What is a little different now, I think, is that our students who are older, they come in at 27 or so, they have worked for a while and they've had enough experience being managed poorly 
Right. that they know this starts to matter, right? So once we engage them in their own experience and say, do you really want to be like that person who managed you this way? Uh, then you can kind of get their attention. But it is a bit of a struggle. There's a lot of noise all around them. So would you say that your 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 bottom line is that you're really uh, promoting a human-centered approach to managing people? Would that be right? I think that's right. And as, as you know, this is not a new story. Uh, and it's been a constant battle back and forth for probably 70 years, since the 1950s almost, you know, this, or Douglas McGregor used to call theory X and theory Y, right? The two different views about human nature, and that hasn't gone away. And are I'm there any there. famous thinkers that you you can pe refer people to? Like I refer people to Charles Handy and Peter Drucker. Charles is still with us in London. <laughs> he, he, oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, about a year ago, we featured uh, someone else's interviews. He, uh, he's an amazing thinker. But have you got mm -hmm. any particular book that you'd recommend that people read? Well, I think, you know, Peter Drucker's interesting, as is Alfred P. Sloan. Some people think that's the best business book ever, my years at General Motors. And the reason is they were seeing all these big business problems for the very first time, trying to run a complex organization. Oh. And so you see them as they unfolded. And that's, you know, quite a quite a great thing. Uh, but, you know, I think for the world of practice, it, it isn't like there's a million new things that matter for a day-to-day -day line manager uh, you know there's there are things about employee empowerment that have grown in importance over time i think as we've recognized we move from simple quality circles to lean production to agile which is basically more and more responsibility pushed onto people you know right um, so it's not like it's new ideas that we need so much as more execution of them more people willing to pay attention to them, right. and that's been the hard part. And some of the uh, some of the um, speakers that uh, or experts that I've uh, had conversations with on this podcast have pushed the idea of collaboration, and uh, everybody is smarter than you know one individual at the top. Have you got any thoughts around that sort of collective wisdom? Uh, sure, and I think that you know it's it's certainly true. Why hasn't it happened more? I think because of this kind of optimization thinking about the need to hold somebody accountable. Yes. Right. So if you think about the, another crazy thing we do all the time, we put people in teams to work together, but we evaluate them individually. So you still have your individual performance appraisal. That happens you're in university. You know, I have interns all the time. They're doing a group project but they're being evaluated as, as as an individual. And obviously the interns I have have great work ethic and they're complaining yeah. about the one person that's doing nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah which affects yeah. their their overall. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah no, you know, I, but I think, Nina, the point of that is in a safer environment, can we help them understand how to deal with that problem? Because they're going to see it again. Yes, right? they're that's true. Again. That's true. So, you know, why why kid them? Uh, this is life, right? Well, my, just to close off, Peter, and it's just been a fascinating conversation and I'm truly privileged to have it. Um, how can people connect with you? And of course, you don't do, you don't have a side hustle like coaching or anything like that, do you? Or do you? 
<laughs> no, I don't. I don't really. Uh, but you know, the beauty of being named Capelli with two P's and two L's. There's not a million of us, you know. So, Peter Capelli. If you just put that in, you'll find me. Yeah. Um, I'm at the Warden School, and I'm certainly happy to talk to people yeah. and point them to things that might be useful for them. That's lovely. Well, it's been a true pleasure and a joy to speak with you today. So thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Indeed, really appreciate it. My pleasure. And much success with your book our least important asset. Cheers. This episode, I spoke with Peter Capelli, Professor of Management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, author of multiple books, including his latest, Our Least Important Asset. Let me know what you think, either by connecting with me on LinkedIn or sign up for my newsletter at brainpowertraining.com.au or ninasunday.com. Join our community who's passionate about reshaping workplace culture and check out the people who help make this podcast happen. Apex Trader Funding, Episode 106, and Dan Silberberg's Leader Council, multiple episodes on this podcast. Until next time, enjoy good things. Nina Sunday is on a mission to help leaders transform culture. To book Nina Sunday CSP to speak at your conference, visit ninasunday.com to request a proposal. Nina travels from Brisbane, Australia for in-person presentations Australia-wide. Twice certified virtual presenter, Nina Sunday presents virtually, globally, for any time zone. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>